Hi there, welcome to the episode five of The Dotted Line, a series on contract drafting presented by Davis Ray Tremaine. Uh, my name's Craig Baker. And I'm Wendy Kearns. And today we're gonna um, do the second part of sort of the, the licensing clause or the licensing clauses. Um, in the last episode, we talked about sort of the affirmative rights that are being granted. Um, now we wanna talk about um, sort of some of the rights, the, the restrictions, the reservations of rights, and also just you know some of the ways that, or some of the other elements that you will see um, in, an, in a licensing clause. Yeah, so, and last week we talked about, you know, kind of kind of how, how you get all the rights and what rights are granted, and, and we'll spend a lot of today's episodes talking about what gets taken away, right, Craig? That's right, that's right. Um, yeah, and, and again, if you if you think structurally about licenses, um, you know, we have, you know, you have a paragraph um, which, as we discussed um, in the last episode, um, is made up of these three parts and and sort of defines the the affirmative rights um, and and you know and, and limitations that are, are on the scope of the license, but 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 what is being given um, as part of any license. Um, and then usually there is a second paragraph that is reservation of rights, restrictions on rights. It's, it's again, it's sort of a litany um, of, you know, to some people's minds, boilerplate, but a litany of, of restrictions on the license being granted. Um, and then there usually, um, there, there may be some sort of third element, which is about delivery or um, the ways that the actual function of the um, licensed um, uh, of the intellectual property rights are being transferred. Uh, and so may maybe we should start with that last part first, Wendy. So um, do you want to do you want to start us off there? Yeah, so you'll have this license grant to whatever the thing that's being licensed uh, is. And in some cases, it'll be a fairly straightforward piece of intellectual property and it'll be fairly self-evident how the licensee might get this thing. Uh, but uh, in, in, if you're dealing with the complex pieces of intellectual property, it might not be totally apparent how, how the uh, licensee is going to, uh, to get that and how the licensor is going to deliver it. So having some sort of uh, what's called a delivery clause is, is is um, uh, you know you would you might be implied in good faith that you know if you're granting a license you would you you would make sure that the um, make sure that the licensee actually gets what's being licensed but sometimes this can be a bit of a of a headache so uh, making making sure that the parties understand how this very large software package with all kinds of different uh, complicated build instructions is going to get to the, the uh, licensee and uh, in a way that they can use it uh, is, 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 is sometimes necessary. So it's just something that's important to pay attention to. Um, what's your experience with these clauses, Craig? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, one of the things that we often forget is that you are getting a license to intellectual property rights and often that license really doesn't have any independent value unless you are also getting um, some 
um, physical manifestation of those rights. And so that may be a set of instructions as to how to um, to do the thing. And so, so you know, assembling your furniture may come with a set of, of intellectual property instructions um, that, and, and that's the value of it. But it also may be something that is, um, th those intellectual property rights are now part of, you know, this, this thing that you're getting, whether that is a, a software package um, or whether that's a physical piece of hardware or whether that's a book or something something like that. And so, um, you know, you don't want to find yourself in a situation where you have obtained the intellectual property rights, but that um, you don't have the value because you're not actually getting the, the, the physical, you know, elements to that. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody is really trying to frustrate an agreement um, where somebody is not um, getting some of those secondary elements, but um, trying to, to figure out whether or not um, and I see this more in patent licenses where you have these knowledge transfer um, um, clauses. So it's not just necessarily that you're transferring the, the, the software, but you're actually also setting up a time period after the execution or the effective date um, to some sort of conclusion where you're going to be offloading um, a bunch of, of know-how and intellectual property um, to the licensee so that they can then practice the patent or, or take advantage of the patent license. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that overall, this is less of an issue at the beginning of a license agreement. Parties have just signed the, you know, everyone's money's exchanged, whatever, everyone's happy. Um, but later down the line, uh, people kind of can fall down sometimes on their obligations. So, for example, if there are updates or upgrades to software or if there are is new know-how about the patent or there's new you know additions to the documentation or there's some sort of modifications to the work that there was a license grant to uh, but no one has bothered from the licensor side to package this up and ship it off uh, even though the contract says you have a right to this and maybe the contract specifies every month or every six months or whatever you'll you'll give us the new information whatever it is we're entitled to that that sometimes either isn't described with good enough sufficiency in the agreement or something happens and it just doesn't quite get executed on well and sometimes you don't know as the as the licensee i mean there is a transparency question that that can sometimes come up because you know you will see licensors who at the time at the effective date completely intend to license the 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 package and everything else that comes with it for the, the time period, but maybe they discover that they have a, 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 an ancillary product that actually turns out to be the most valuable part of what they have. They now want to start charging for that. And you'll see in some agreements, people will say, um, you know, not only do I get a license to the underlying software, I get anything that that is a substitute for that or, you know, something that, um, you, you know, that that performs the same functionality because the, the, the licensee basically doesn't want to discover that there's some new um, gee whiz um, um, button or bell that they thought that they were getting and it turned out that they didn't get um, and maybe they don't discover it until later um, and so sometimes part of this delivery function is you know recognizing uh, or putting in a mechanism putting in a process where the licensee has visibility in terms of what the licensor is doing.
Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think it's just imperative to just think through that in the drafting is, you know, how, again, how are they going to get this physical um, uh, manifestation? But uh, now that we've talked about what they should be getting or what they are getting, I think uh, moving on to what you referred to as the second part, which is also could be referred to as the big meanie clause of the agreement, which is really a bunch of no's. <laughs> you, the, the restrictions grant uh, can't do this, can't do that, can't do this, can't do that. It's really probably the most psychologically uh, defeating clause in the whole agreement about all the, all the things that cannot be done with this intellectual property that is being licensed. Um, you can see the, these clauses can get very, very long and they can sometimes be amusing. Uh, they, they will sometimes say in many different ways sort of this, the same thing. Uh, you can't share it. You can't, you can't lend it. You can't lease it. You can't sublicense it. You can't, you know, it's just like a lot of synonyms for uh, the same thing. And they may be in, you know, subparts clauses A through Z. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and again, usually it's titled the, the restrictions clause. Um, and so we'll go over a couple of the most common restrictions. Now, of course, these are common restrictions, but they also could be rights grants or they could be missing from the restriction because in the case of uh, the license agreement, they're, they're actually permitted. But uh, what, what, what we'll talk about today is things we commonly see in a restrictions clause. Right. And, and normally the first thing that you see is, um, except as expressly um, described herein, you don't get any of these things. And, and that is, that is that serves the same function as what we talked about in our um, last episode regarding the sort of no implied rights. You know, often the reservation of rights clause is saying um, anything that's not expressly granted is not granted. The rights are reserved. So there's no implied rights um, that are granted. Um, sometimes, um, or, or you should every time see in a software license, usually in all caps, um, something that says, um, this is a license, not a sale, or some variation on that. Um, and, and we've seen this become more important um, over time, because um, the idea is if, it's a, if the software license is considered a sale, well then um, the, um, under the Copyright Act, the owner of the software becomes the, the licensee, the purchaser of the software. And so that purchaser can then resell the software. And so there are um, a series of um, first sale doctrine cases under copyright law that, that have um, basically said that you, know, you as the licensor need to say that this is not a, a license. Um, or that that yeah that it's a license not a sale in order to make that effective. So um, one that that's why you'll see that that's also why you'll see that in all caps is because of this um, uh, first sale doctrine implication. Right. What are some some of the others that you see, Wendy? Yeah, uh, one of the very common ones is one I already alluded to, which is the no rent, uh, no lease, no no lending, and no resale. So. Uh, this is basically meant to um, prohibit a licensee from um, making portions of it available on a timeshare or a, uh, a, a another commercial business. So you could, if you took a product or a, 
a piece of software or you know piece of technology and you you know said hey uh, i own the copy of this software because there's you know a, a um uh there's the clause that craig first talked about it i might not own the copyright of the software but i own a copy of of this software so i'm going to maybe take it and um charge an hourly fee for other people to use it. Uh, without this clause, there could be an argument that that's permitted if you know the license grant were broad enough. So the no no rent, no lease, no lending, you know that the no resale um, would right. We also see can't act it can't act as a service bureau. And again, it's sort of you know again to prohibit the the licensee to sort of turn around and offer this sort of on a quote unquote cloud basis, which which most of these clauses pre preceded right. the, the concept of cloud, but but again, exactly to your point. Yeah, Service Bureau is a little bit of an older nomenclature before the right. SaaS services and cloud services were so ubiquitous, but it's, it's you definitely still see Service Bureau in, in these clauses. Yeah, and I mean, one of one of the things that you'll see in a lot of these reservation of rights clauses, um, they are much longer in the technology space than they are in um, in a traditional content space. And so, the reservation of rights clauses, um, there um, there are fewer ways that you can technologically copy something um, in the in the copyright space that isn't already prohibited. But because there are so many different ways that you might be able to use a, a, a piece of technology or a piece of software, you know, we'll often see these these um, um, restrictions much, much broader in a in a software in a technology agreement. So you'll see, for instance, the no reverse engineering, um, no disassembly, no reverse compiling, you know, basically this idea that you can't go and um, reverse engineering is, is basically where you take a thing that you have access to and then you try and figure out how something works. So, you know, if, if, if you buy something and then take it apart to see how it worked um, and then understand stand the secret way that it was put together, um, then you can, you know, um, create your own, um, your own thing. And so um, these uh, these are ubiquitous. I, I don't think I've ever seen a technology clause or technology agreement, even even ones that are exceptionally poorly drafted, still have a no reverse engineering, um, no reverse compiling, no um, disassembly. You know, all of this kind of uh, notion is, is in it. So, so you'll see this in in every piece of boilerplate. Yeah, and 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 honestly, without one of these clauses, it's a little bit malpractice in the United States. There's some cases uh, uh, on this very point where you you really need to have this in your license grant. The Blizzard case and and related cases talk about this uh, that you know reverse engineering needs be pro prohibited. Um, so, you know, re reading up on that case would be important. It gets a little bit trickier in the European Union where yeah. there are some statutory rights for interoperability purposes. Um, and so just a blanket, um, you know, uh, prohibition on reverse compiling or reverse engineering is not um, enforceable uh, due to um, some of the interoperability issues. Now, um, this is, is 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 something that would deserve 
deserve a little bit of research should you be licensing things in in the um in the eu because there are there is a, a some workaround language around this um that you should uh, uh search for some examples on that talk about you know the licensor um having the ability to provide the interoperability language if they're going to prohibit uh, or provide the interoperability keys or, or information if they're going to just outright prohibit reverse engineering. So it's not completely um, it's not completely verboten, but uh, you you have to um, you have to provide the licensee some some workarounds so that they can achieve interoperability. Well, and there's also just kind of a a tradition among software engineers. This this you know we also see this in the open source space too, where where there is a hostility from technologists and software engineers and developers and things to these clauses because they feel like this is is something that they're entitled to do. So we we'll, we will sometimes see um, a gap between the the expectations of what. Um, people think is legal or ought to be legal um, between parties um, in, in that context. So what else, um, Wendy, do, do, do you see that we should call attention to? Um, well, one is is that uh, whether something is disclosable at all to third parties. Now, it's you can see this either in the restrictions that you know you can't share this with third parties or disclose it to third parties. You could also see this in the confidentiality clause if the intellectual property itself um, is defined in the confidential information clause. So, um, but you you could find this in both both places. Uh, what else? What else do you see? Craig? Well, normally there is, and, and this is something that is um, consistent or, or that you'll, you'll often see in the owner IP ownership section too, but, but there is usually something that says except as expressly granted all of the IP intellectual property that's been created is owned um, by the, the licensing party or owned by the, the, the party that owned it in the first instance. And so um, usually this is, is belt and suspenders, but you'll often see some sort of, um, or it's not unusual to see a reservation of rights clause here that, that basically is saying, um, hey, if, if, it, if there's any IP that's created that, that belongs to me uh, or belongs to the licensing party, which could be each party in, in, in a given contract. Um, sometimes you don't see it in the reservation of rights clause and it is a separate clause as part of the IP ownership clause, um, but I'll often, but we'll, we'll see that in, um, you know, in these clauses. Mm -hmm. Um, another one that I see that is um, uh, specific, I think, more to the technology industry, although I'd be interested to see if you've seen it other places, Craig, is um, a no benchmarking clause. Uh, this, uh, I, you know, I, I've, I've seen this qu quite a few times where it will say you cannot use this piece of technology or software in order to um, compare it against other competitive products. So this is pretty much targeted at uh, a competitor who may have picked up a license to whatever it is. So uh, say you have uh, you know two pieces of CAD software or whatever, and you you have one CAD manufacturer licensing another CAD 
manufacturer's software package, um, the licensor is trying to prevent that first CAD manufacturer from analyzing and comparing uh, all of its features and performance against um, against the other uh, CAD manufacturers software or, you know, or any other software that may be in the same field. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, whether, whether these are enforceable kind of depends on jurisdiction kind of depends on um, the broadness of how they're drafted uh, sort of, you know, to, to, depends on a variety of, uh, of factors, um, certainly can be enforceable. Uh, so, uh, you know, pr pr proceed with measured caution, uh, whether you're the licensor or the, the licensee of, of these clause, but they're, they're definitely, they're definitely common enough that they can be a little bit of a pitfall. Yeah. And I don't think that they're limited. They, they're, they may be communicated a little bit differently in in other kinds of agreements but this the notion of um i mean this is a at some level this is a non-compete right and so you'll see one of the tricks of, of drafting in in these reservation of rights clauses is to ensure that you're not um overlooking basically a non-compete that's embedded in um the reservation of rights clause so it is um a uh, it is something that that I don't see benchmarking per se in in a non-technology license, but you will see, you know, you can't use this to build a competing service. You can't use this um, to, um, you, you know, uh, share with other. You can't share this information, um, you know, in order to have you know something developed for you. And so I think it. Yeah, you know, I would suppose of, you see it in the in in the data licensing context too. Yeah. Can't use this data to, you know, start checking your own data and build right, your own exactly. database or something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, an, another thing that you often will see in these clauses um, is a um, prohibition against removing or obscuring or changing um, the the credits or the markings or the branding um, or anything like that on the clause yeah yeah on, on the underlying um, tech or on the underlying um, license or the IP that's being granted so so one of the things that a licensor wants to ensure happens um, is that um, everybody who's subsequently getting access to this knows where it ultimately came from. Um, this is important under pretty much every one of the, the different categories of intellectual property. Um, you know, there is an element of, of having an obligation to police um, you know, your intellectual property so you don't sort of lose those rights. And, and you know, if someone limits or removes or obscures the you know, the, the, the markings on it, um, that can have, you know, really significant implications. So, so there's normally a prohibition um, in these clauses, in these reservation rights clauses that, that um, address that. Another one uh, that I have seen plenty of times is no, the no robot or no spider clause, no crawling. Um, this would typically be in uh, a technology license where you have technology or a web service or something that can be crawled, uh, uh, you know, on, on the web, uh, 
websites will typically mark themselves with uh, what's called a robots.txt file, which will um, mark search crawler, well, which will tell search crawlers, you are not allowed to um, crawl and scrape my website, right? So it's it's kind of the language of the web to, you know, for these for these sites to just basically say, hey, Google, Bing, whoever you are, you know, you're not allowed to crawl here. Uh, but uh, when you're when you're dealing with licensed technology or software as a service or you know other sorts of uh, agreed upon uh, terms like this, you're not you're not necessarily talking to a crawler. So you have to tell the uh, you have to tell the licensee like, hey, don't don't you know use your automated crawler or your search engine or whatever to now you know just start combing this thing that you're buying from me that that's a, that's effectively what that restriction is about right and part of this is usually you're crawling information that is not itself protectable under um, intellectual property law or has limited sets of of, of um, protection and so this this no crawling concept is really around um, trying to ensure that the user isn't sort of basically grabbing data. You're trying to control the behavior through through the prohibition um, so that they're not grabbing data because once they grab the data, they're not a whole lot of, of remedies that you're going to be able to have um, you know in that context because generally you know it wouldn't be something that we would think is prohibited um, unless you're prohibiting it by by contract. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, I guess the last one that I would mention is, is uh, about the circumvention of security features. So sometimes we will or we will see you're not allowed to go into the product and break down its security features in order to um, you know, in, in order to either reverse engineer or um, or do something with the product that it was, uh, you know, not intended to be, not that you weren't intending to be able to do because of the security feature. So don't don't decrypt something, don't break locks, don't you know, don't don't otherwise uh, go go in and do that. And I mean, that's that's a fairly common sense one. It has some roots in the. Digital Millennium Copyright Act um, as well, but uh, Craig, other uh, if you have other thoughts on that one in particular? No, I mean it was just what um, you said. What I was going to, which is it. This is really an outgrowth of Section 1201 of the the DMCA, um, which is a copyright um, issue, and it's sort of the the you know decryption um, um, element to it. And 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 again, it's a way to sort of create. Well, I think it, the, the the licensors are trying to do two things here. One is you're trying to buttress the rights that you have um, because there are some safe harbors and carve outs in in twelve oh one. And then secondly, where you have something that is not um, protected under copyright, you're trying to by um, contract sort of create those protections and so you know we've seen things with like printer cartridges and and other things where people have tried to create contractual limitations um, because the um, the statutory protections they have may may not apply to in that particular instance yeah thank you Lexmark <laughs> yes. um, so Craig we have a question from the audience our trusty audience um, ready you always sound so surprised I, I yeah it, it's they, they come through every time. Uh, That's right. So the question for today is, 
uh, do I have to list absolutely everything that a party is not allowed to do in the restrictions? What are your thoughts on that one? Um, so I would say no. Um, and in fact, it, you know, you have to sort of consider whether it, if you list everything, uh, are, are you creating um, an implication by omission? And what I mean by that is, you know, a, a copyright, or I mean, a um, intellectual property holder or owner holds all of the intellectual property unless they're expressly giving a, a right or license to it. So, so fundamentally you're saying, if I didn't give this to you, it remains with me. And the fact that I didn't say you can't do X or Y, the, the, the um, assumption would be that you didn't have that right in the, in the, in the first instance. Um, I think where it can be dangerous is sometimes people will you know, try and just create a laundry list of every single thing. And if I list 15 things that you're not permitted to do, and I, don't list the 16th, which is pretty obvious to everybody under the context, you know, then you start wondering, well, is that, you know, is there, is that an exclusion? You know, it, it, did the parties mean that to be covered under a, under the scope of the license? I mean, you, you create, you're actually creating ambiguity where, where ambiguity didn't exist in the first instance. Yeah. I mean, in, in, with, with, uh, certainly with a few exceptions, a couple of them we've listed today, uh, a, a lot of the times these restrictions lists can, can be like just people, a licensors or companies either following things that they've seen pe other people do in license agreements or they're paranoid uh, or they're just like worried and want to just make totally clear that people know they can't do something. But um, to Craig's point, many of these things that you see in the restrictions list aren't actually required. You're not, they're not actually required to tell people they can't do that under law. They can't do it under law anyway, unless you granted them the right. Now, again, there's a few exceptions to that. But that's where, you know, I, I think our, our, our best recommendation um, is that if you're going to practice in this area, make sure you do some academic study in the different uh, pieces of law or, you know, read some of these seminal cases, like really understand where, you know, where it is that they don't have the rights anyway. And, and that will help you make your license agreements, let, you know, more short. It'll help you not worry about should I have listed the 16th, 17th, 18th, 20th thing or not. Um, and, and you really then know like what you, what, what rights you absolutely have to have in there are restrictions in order to um, satisfy both the, the needs of, of your client, which, you know, no matter who you represent. Well, and sometimes, and, and I see this happen a lot, it, it is absolutely the case that particularly um, more inexperienced lawyers, but I but we see this all the time with, with sort of belt and suspenders approaches, people will um, actually say the same thing multiple times in the reservation of rights clause um, and, you know, or elsewhere in the agreement. And, you know, it, it, saying the same, saying the same restriction twice does not make it twice as effective. And in fact, it may make it less uh, effective because you might, in, unless they're identical, you might be injecting um, ambiguity into, into the agreement. So um, it, it is definitely an in, intuition of the, um, you know, of drafters to, to, to want to overdraft. And that is something which um, you can get yourself in trouble with. Yeah. So Wendy, what is your tip, trick, or quirk for this week? 
So I think mine would be around the intersection of hardware and software licensing. So one thing to keep in mind is that there are uh, some, there are laws around patent exhaustion. And if you have a product that is both a hard good and software, um, you can uh, have issues where the hardware where, where use restrictions on the hardware may not be enforceable based on patent exhaustion rules. And so understanding, you know, some of the case law around uh, patent exhaustion to our point about, uh, about, you know, knowing some of your IP laws um, and what, what could be enforceable for hardware versus what can be enforceable for software, it can, can be, uh, is a very key point to, to understand. So you may not be able to tell people every, that they can't do this, that, the uh, other thing, you know, this whole litany of long restrictions when it comes to something that is protectable by patent alone. Um, and that is the patent exhaustion doctrine. Um, but things that are um, things that are protectable by uh, copyright, um, software, you know, copies of software, the software is licensed, not sold, much more enforceable. A lot of the restrictions we've talked about today, more enforceable with respect to software, but it's not quite as cut and dry when it comes to uh, things that are only protected by patent. So, uh, you know, study up on the, uh, the laws around there and make sure you don't get yourself into uh, writing licenses or restrictions that are unenforceable when it comes to patents. What about you, Craig? Well, I'm just going to pick a, 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 a similar precaution, but, but, um, but a different body of law, which is trademark. Um, and I think that, um, you know, most of the licenses we've talked about have, have assumed trademark um, licenses, but, but one of the things about trademark licenses is that they tend to have um, different sort of boilerplate in the reservation of rights and these conditions of use elements. Um, often there's a requirement that, you know, use of the trademark has to be um, in conformance with some trademark guidelines. Um, trademark law is an area that is, a lot of this boilerplate is actually um, important to, to add to, to the clauses making sure that someone can't register a, a conflicting or a competing mark, um, ensuring that um, the goodwill that the licensees, licensee, the goodwill that, that is generated from the licensee's use um, inures to the benefit of the, the trademark licensor. Um, there are a series of these kinds of things um, and you know, absent, you know, you don't want to end up with a sort of a naked trademark license where um, someone can use the trademark sort of without restriction as the licensee and then the licensor has um, sort of some limited um, ability to control that and, and to get all the benefits. And so I just would again say, um, as, as Wendy did, make sure that you are aware that they're going to be different um, pattern and practice in terms of um, some of the language as it relates to trademark and make sure that you are um, aware of that as you're drafting. Yeah, so dear listener, you have some homework. That's right. Well, that brings us to a close for episode five. Um, we want to thank uh, our audience um, again this week and um, we hope episode six. I think we're going to talk about some payment provisions, right, Craig? We're, we're finally right. getting to the, we're finally going to get to the money, which is where, where it, it 
matters to everyone. Well, it doesn't matter to the lawyers, but it certain, certainly matters to the business people. This is the only place that they actually pay attention. Um, yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about a lot of the, the payment and, and clauses, and we'll talk about royalties and um, 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 revenue share and all of the different ways that, that deals may be structured financially um, over the next um, episode or, or possibly two. So we look forward to, to, to talking to you then. Thanks for joining the line. See you next time.